0: The benefit, the joy, the, the, the gift that Be More Pirate gives me still and other people is, is in simplest terms, that ability to speak your mind, right? So what happened? So in the Pirate Code 2.0 I was putting forward, I was, you know, just trying to call bullshit on the things that need calling bullshit on, like it's their business plans, because it's got some numbers on it, everyone thinks, right, okay, that's what's going to happen. And we can fall into a trap of thinking change innovation is about starting something, but usually it's about stopping something and that's much harder to do.
1: And this, this has been a, a, a kind of a bit of a mission of yours, hasn't it? One of my absolute favourite books um, is Be More Pirate. Um, one of my colleagues uh, recommended it to me, and I love it. And it's a, it's a fantastically rich, I guess it started as a metaphor, but there's actually a historical truth to it. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose piracy uh, to, uh, to make some deeper deeper points?
0: Sure. Sure. Um... And, and yeah, it, it's, it's been great because it, it got a really warm reception within Google. Uh, Crystal Eisinger was one of the first people to ke- get hands on it. And, and we've done lots of great stuff together as a result. I'm very grateful for the support, actually, that, that you and the other teams gave the book. Um, and it's because I've, I've worked with young people and young innovators and entrepreneurs an awful lot over my life. And I've often used, as many people have, like Steve Jobs famously called, the, you know, I'd rather be a pirate than join the Navy. As a euphemism, as a metaphor. And I never really understood what I, what I meant by that. And as I was getting ready to leave Liberty, I'd always said that I'd leave Liberty when I got old. Um, and when I was challenged on that, I said, oh, that'll be 40 because I started Liberty in my 20s and I was 40. That's never going to I mean, yeah, I'll be dead by then. Um, and so I needed a vehicle that was going to get me out of Liberty. And I was also slightly frustrated, not at Liberty per se, but the industry, the industry of change, because like you say, change is a constant. And I found I lost my belief a little bit in words like change and innovation and i think we can very often happily go to a two-day innovation off-site come up with some new names for doing the same shit and then all go back to work and <laughs> and i just couldn't do that anymore and the more post-it notes that went on the wall the more i wanted to cover myself in them and <laughs> and what became clear was that it's we can fall into a trap of thinking change and innovation is about starting something but usually it's about stopping something and that's much harder to do and and at a big level that's what we need to do in in an, an, in a world that is 60% over its biosphere capacity, you know, World Resource Day, what well, I can't remember exactly what it was called, is now in August. Every year, we, the, 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 the day that we use up the world's natural resources gets earlier. So anybody whose business model is remotely connected to something consumerist in its very core notion, who isn't just kind of backfilling sustainability principles, is going to yeah, find themselves on the wrong side of history pretty quickly. So the change that's required isn't the change that we've we've known. And if we get anywhere near the things, the kind of change that's still advocated for, we're still going to be behind where we need to be. Like, so anything less than revolution or rebellion isn't isn't quite touching where we need to go to. So that's where I started. Like, I began the process of writing a book to challenge myself to get me out of liberty as a kind of a, a vehicle for whatever was going to come next. And to be really honest, I don't admit this one all the time, um, I wrote the world's most boring book. I got uh, 20,000 words into a book called Purpose First. Uh, it was fucking dismal. And it was because I was trying to be a grown up, right? And I thought, oh, I'm gonna write a book and I'm gonna write really useful, clever language. And I'm gonna, and I went away and I, I started sharing with people. And they're like, wow, what's happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> and I did a, a, a workshop on it with some young entrepreneurs I was working they're like, "What has happened, Sam? Where's all that, the rocket ships? Where's all the pirates? I went back to my desk and, and I had this note, where's all the pirates? And I thought, why do I always talk about pirates? And I went to the British Library and then to the Greenwich Maritime Museum. And I suddenly discovered that the, the history we know of pirates is not the true history of pirates. And the true history of pirates, 300 years ago, they were the social entrepreneurs uh, of their day. They were absolute pioneers um, and they're true place in history is on the was on the great history of the working class and change makers and probably somewhere between the chartists and the early uh, reformist movements and the cooperative trade unions and civil rights like that's actually the impact they made and it's not the story we tell and so by grounding their stories there there was this kind of unlock and update to the metaphor and and it turns out uh not just a vehicle for me to kind of get my thoughts together for where change was going to go next but then it ended up being a surprising, surprising success. Well, they, they were famous.
1: Richie. You? you talk about them um, as the first uh, pioneers of branding. You know, I'm we- wearing uh, my skull and crossbones. Well, actually, it's skis, not crossbones, but uh, it's the closest I could get. Um, this, this,
0: with my... that kind of show, I take my top off and show you my pirate tattoos. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, dual, the, the, the dual governance that they had, the social insurance uh, against injury, the uh, universal suffrage, um, very, it was a very sort of gender uh, uh, equal um, environment, um, pay equality, uh, same-sex marriage. They, they were pioneers in so many ways. And you extracted these wonderful um, codes, these pirate code uh, codes or principles from how they lived, which I just think are wonderful. The Pirate Code 1.0, uh, Volume 1, I guess, of the book, Challenge the Establishment, Create, Innovate and Disrupt, Fiercely Independent, Led by Principles, Honest about Profit, Highly Talented but Underappreciated, uh, that's Really that's Recognizable. That's now now the 2.0, right? The 2.0. Can you talk about your
0: 2.0? Yeah, and I, I still apply the principles of, of Pirate Codes to wherever I go, um, this shared idea of trust and values-based decision-making. And it's, it's much like the fear-fog-stasis I got to earlier on. If we don't address the reality that we're working with, then we end up, and you know you know this, you've been in enough big corporates, well-intended, but they have to write words on the walls because they can't remember that their values are simple things like honesty and trust, right? So what happens? So in the Pirate Code 2.0 I was putting forward, You know, just trying to call bullshit on the things that need calling bullshit on. like their business plans. You know, we know what that's like. You know, of course, there are times when a plan is very useful, but there's an awful lot of times when we can mistake a spreadsheet for reality because it's got some numbers on it. Everyone thinks, right, okay, that's what's going to happen. And that can take away our agency. It can take away our accountability. It can take away our our, our decision making and responsibility for that, which is not on the plan. That's not necessarily the best way to govern our lives. I talk about the, the citizen shift, which is the, the very brilliant concept of a man called John Alexander. Um, uh, and he charts, you know, there was once a time that we were subject and then we became consumer as a dominant narrative and, and now is the time to move to citizen, to, to be an individual with agency and to be a collective with responsibility, not determined solely by being a, a, a unit of consumption, which I really believe in. Um, and these notions are big challenges to the old rules that we face. And my, my, my argument is that in the, as we entered the 21st century, it was widely heralded that creativity is the number one skill that we all need, right? But as I look around me, or more importantly, as I think to the young people who, who my work has mainly been dedicated to, or even my children, I don't think they see a world which rewards creativity. I think they see a world which rewards conformity. And so the, the subtext is fit in and the messages stand out. And then that creates a, a dichotomy, a dichotomy of dishonesty around us, which I think is very troublesome. And so the, the real call cool is when you see this, when you see this dishonesty, it's, it's now is the time to stand up and to speak up and to, and to stand uh, up for these things that we believe in. And, and what happens when we begin to challenge the rules? And for lots of people, rule breaking sounds very scary, very risky and uncomfortable. You know, we want to protect that which is around us. But I think it's shifted, right? And rule-breaking is no longer the irresponsible thing to do. It is the responsible thing to do. Because it's by following a lot of yeah. the, the rules that are outdated that we've got here. So You know this. So much of the culture that governs our organisations is is just habits. It's just behaviours. And often those behaviours and, and, and habits, I, A, I either don't come from the best place, B, they weren't very well thought through at the time, uh, and C, you know, very often we didn't update, especially in the fast-moving world that we're in. So... I did, a, I did a survey, of a uh, 4,000-person UK workforce uh, survey just before the pandemic on a piece I was writing as a follow-up to being my pirate. Um, my question, question number one was, have you been in a meeting in the last six weeks where you said yes, you agreed to something, that internally you disagreed with? Any guess on, on the percentage of people who'd said yes to something that really they wanted to say no to? I'd say more than 50%. 85%. 85. Right? 85%. Uh, subsequent question. Having said verbally yes to something that internally you meant no, did you then go on to do something to sabotage the thing that you'd said yes to? 67%. 67. Right? The mm. average meeting size is seven people. That means you can only trust 1.5 people to actually say yes to something they believe to and then follow it through with intention. And, wow. and this is, this comes from, a, and I learned this part of it through, through the uncertainty experts. We have an ingrained fear of speaking up you know, there are lots of people who don't, and and you, you know, to to empathise with this, uh, because no one wants to be excluded from a social group. To 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 speak up risks your your status, your place of safety. So it's very easy for us to to try to fit in, but and many people know that. You know, even if the question is seemingly obvious, like you must be ridiculous. You, is that really the timeline? You know, that can't actually be the budget. Like these are the questions inside us. Instead we go, yep, okay, I think, uh, yeah, great, <laughs> and then, and. <laughs> And our ability, you know, so those are some of the rules I'm talking about. This the rule there is that we must fit in, we must not speak out, and we shouldn't challenge, even if that's what's going through our heads. And the benefit, the joy, the, the, the gift that Be More Pirate gives me, still, and other people is, is in simplest terms that ability to speak your mind when your first response is to fit in.
1: Well, that's, uh, that really resonates with me. You know, we did a study in Google some years ago to try and decode and figure out the difference between a fantastically high-performing team versus uh, a good team. You know, most teams are good, but what separates the the the, uh, the great teams from the, from the good ones? And uh, it boiled down to a simple thing, psychological safety. Uh, and psychological safety in the sense that, uh, you know, you feel comfortable to – take risks to speak up, uh, to come out of your comfort zone, knowing that your colleagues uh, will not knock you down. They kind of expect that. Uh, they'll pick you back up, tap you on the, the back and, and on you go. And uh, we failure uh, and experimentation within that is a, a badge of honour. Um, this is an environment in which uh, high innovation happens because there's risk taking and, you know, the, the, uh, the safety or the normalcy of uh of doing everything that you just um described or the antithesis of of the sort of not speaking up side of things so it absolutely uh, resonates with with our experience but it's very difficult to create that context you know it re- requires intention doesn't
0: it yeah what it, it is um it sits between the two projects and for me you know liberty into be more pirate into uncertainty it's kind it's all very much i mean it's not as clear to the external world as i wish it was to me but it's it they're still working on the same processes. And what I've learned in, in uncertainty it w- was for me to get beneath. beam a pirate was an unexpected success and an inspiration to lots of people, but I didn't really understand why, what, what was causing action. So that's kind of what prompted me into uncertainty. So the thing that I've learned here, and uh, this is from one of the uncertainty experts, Dr. Vivian Ming, who began life as a very depressed young man. Um, arrived one night with a, with a gun, nearly took his own life. An intervention was made and got into university, ended up turning out was an absolute, like, uh, gifted um, neuroscientist, computational neuroscientist, top of his class, Stanford, MIT, all that kind of thing. Still drastically unhappy, um, was able to confront the inner fears, and it was around gender transition, went through gender transition, kind of fully realized uh, Dr. Ming's potential, got married, now got a family, multiple entrepreneur, and is doing amazing things, bringing technology to the world. And not only does she do multiple studies of teams and she found a very similar uh, result and actually in um, over I can't remember, it's several million data sets, this sense, what she observed, of this, this, this thing that created teams where safety, trust, communication, she measured it on a number of different measures. Actually, she boiled it down even further and it was to a place of sacrifice. If you are willing to make a sacrifice, a cost to yourself for someone else, this is when teams outperform and not just teams this is where you begin to be able to measure long-term life outcomes like you know uh, even things like posture grip you know actual like the full rounded experience of being a human as well as increased potential and 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 promotion but it's got to be genuine so it's this notion that you know it's a counterintuitive notion that the people who win the race are the ones who stop for their race fellow who fell you know and not try and win there's a real like gamesmanship to it. It's, it's fascinating, but it goes into that place. I think social safety provides the wrapper, but this goes a step further into what is, the, what is the behavior, what is the relationship that we then have. And that notion of sacrifice really really struck a chord with me. And what she also taught me was around how the brain updates itself. And the, the Bayesian model of the brain, which is widely accepted now, is that the brain is a prediction machine So it runs uh, millions and millions and millions of projections and that, that accelerates when you go into uncertainty. So it goes onto hyperdrive and runs countless millions of predictions to keep you alive. And and that's why uh, uncertainty is so exhausting because the, the cognitive workload is so great. And its predictions are based on what it's seen before. The brain doesn't really have much of imagination, kind of weirdly. Um, so because every single time you've gone on that journey, it's always worked out. Whatever you've run into that argument, when you've said this, it's always got better. When you've gone to that uh, gym, you know, so the brain knows that, so it sees familiar patterns and it goes into them. When it's regularly challenged with new patterns, it has to work in a more creative sense and its, it's portfolio, its palette of options becomes greater. So when we saw the uncertainty, it was because they've seen near death, because they've seen tragedy, their brain's prediction model is very wide and it can assimilate itself to a n- numerous different outcomes and, and perceive them all to perhaps you know, have chances of learning or opportunity, whereas the, the human... Uh, the natural instinct is to preserve ourselves, to protect ourselves. So our brain would limit our life experience. And if the, the less experience you have, the less prediction, and the smaller the model that the brain is able to draw from. So the more it, it naturally limits you. So updating the prediction engines of our brain is really important to exactly that, to allow us to create spaces where we are more comfortable. Or crucially, I can sit with someone who I don't recognize, who speaks different from me, has a different world out. And I can still be comfortable within this conversation, and 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 they, at an embodied level, will feel my relaxness with them, and then we will begin to, and we will term it psychological safety. But what's happening here is a kind of chemical exchange based on some pretty primal stuff.
1: Yeah, very, very interesting. I mean, it's we're we're uh, battling millennia of, of human evolution, aren't we? It's quite useful to have uh, these heuristics, these pattern recognition machines on our shoulders when you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, but not so useful when, you, when you're facing chaos. And uh, the, the example I, I love uh, to talk about on this is um, Nokia, bless them. You know, Nokia, not the network equipment provider, but the ones that used to do handsets. Um, you know, I had a 6210, brilliant phone, right? Battery lasts three and a half weeks. You got all your contacts saved, green screen, all that sort of yep. stuff. They more Yeah, exactly, Snake. Uh, WAP, you know, early version of mobile. And in 2007, they had more share of the handset market globally than all of the other uh, players put together. But then Steve Jobs steps onto the stage, announces the iPhone, and um, the collective consciousness, in this case of of Nokia, said, ah, I've seen this before. This is just another device, another new kid on the block. And what they failed to recognise uh, perhaps because of the sort of uh, maybe a collective version of this absence of plasticity uh, is that the game had shifted right it, it was now about the ecosystem and the apps and the music and everything else not the not the device it had left that and of course the rest is history uh, Nokia don't don't exist not in the handset form few ipr licenses here and there but um you know i would i would argue in 2007 if you and you or i had been talking about the sort of bastions high watermark of innovation, we probably would have been using Nokia as the example, you know, having started in forestry and made rubber good boots and then pivoted over to telecommunication. So I think what you're describing here exists not a, not only at an individual level, but also a collective level. Would you agree with that? I,
0: I would very much so, yeah. And I, I've, I've done a lot of reading and thinking about the kind of the opportunities of collective intelligence. And it's one of the reasons we insist on the events being live, because, there is a degree of synchrony that takes place we were looking at seeing if we get some hrv equipment in but the the hypothesis would be that by attending a live event which is fairly high stimulus um there'll be a degree of synchrony of heart rates and everything else because we are coming together so collective intelligence can exist and i would therefore further hy- hypothesize that collective dissonance can also exist and The atrophy, let's call it that, that must have taken place at Nokia because of the certainty that they they had, meant this diminished experience. To bring the mobile analogy further, there was a study of 50,000 mobile phone users using their geolocation data, and after something like three days um, uh, data analysis, every single one of their movements could be predicted to a 97% uh, accuracy rate, because we are such predictable human beings right but if you're not taking a new path if you're not choosing something you've never tried before if you're not then your worldview becomes smaller and you become less aware of the threats around you so maintaining your tolerance to uncertainty means maintaining a degree of hypervigilance, which means maintaining yourself relatively close to the risks that come and and you know this this presents an interesting challenge to your organization you know because you are so dominant no one would imagine that six years from now we'll be looking back going, wow, how did Google not see that coming? But, you know, the, the, the thing you must, and, and I know you talk about this, the vigilance you need now is not against necessarily the next up and comer. It's a vigilance against your own dominance and not, not, not mistaking that for uh, complacency.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree. And um, you know, as a as a proud Kiwi, it's um, a national obligation to talk about the, the All Blacks uh, rugby team. And one of the principles that they um, work with is is uh, that the saying is, "When you're on top of your game, you change your game." Uh, so the sense of sort of relest, restless, uh, relentless, restlessness—that's hard to say. Uh, relentless restlessness. This this idea that. Um, although it may be successful today, we need to sort of move on and be in a different place tomorrow and, and, and keep moving. And that's one of the reasons um, that uh, this is one of the most um, successful sporting teams over a 100-year period in, in, in history. Um, Sam, I could, I could talk to you all night. I'll, I'll spare you that. Um, it's been a huge honour. I'm, I'm a big fanboy of yours uh and uh really looking forward to the uncertainty experts uh thank you so much for joining me you're an inspiration
0: thanks man i really really appreciate it and i know that you know the same goes to you and i know that the, the thing that really uh, impressed me and why i've followed you is finding about how much you did outside i know what you do inside google is pretty innovative but through you already mentioned awesome crystallizing it i found about how much you do outside so my respects also to you
1: thank you sir